0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marcia Brownley. The Artemis community understands that as hunters and anglers, we have a responsibility to actively engage in the conservation of our lands, waters, and wildlife. With that in mind, each year, the Artemis Podcast delves into a special series focusing on a specific conservation issue. Our goal is to dig into the complexity, deepen our understanding, and help spur conversation. This year, our series is about climate change. If we all take a minute to think about our time in the woods and on the water, if we take time to think about our experience, we can't deny that we are seeing drastic changes. Changes in temperature, changes in water levels, changes in habitat quality, and changes in the number and distribution of game. We are seeing changes in our hunting and fishing seasons, and it's impacting us and our communities. In this series, we talk to scientists, conservationists, and leaders from across the country and ask them questions related to climate change to deepen our understanding of what's happening, what's being done about it, and where we can contribute. We're looking forward to digging in, and we thank you for joining us for the Artemis Climate Series. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for the next episode in the Artemis Climate Series. Our co-host is, once again, Ashley Chance. Hi, Ashley. Hey, everybody. And our guest today is Michelle Zimmerman. So Michelle is a returning podcast guest. If you haven't listened to it already, definitely scroll back and check out Game Commissions 101 with Michelle Zimmerman, where we talk about being a state wildlife commissioner. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us again and being a part of our series on climate change. I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for inviting me back. I'm happy to be here. Uh, So the first thing that I want to talk about is the elk hunt that you just got back from. Can you talk to us about that? Tell us that story.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, hunting stories. We could go on for hours about this, but... We do. um, We do. (laughs) That's the idea. That's the purpose purpose of the podcast. Um, Yeah. In fact, we we actually pull... um, did a group hunt we were successful in the draw and we each four of us each got a cow elk tag for fourth season rifle Mm -hmm. here in the southwest colorado area and um we man it was only a five day season and usually fourth rifle we hope you know the area we were hunting is a little lower in elevation and so typically we think that's going to be good for elk in late november sometimes early december Um, but it's been warm we haven't had much snow and um we got there, you know, Tuesday night, we hunted Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they just, they, there were a lot of mule deer, but no elk. Um, We looked everywhere, you know, that we could within our game management unit and our, the private land we were allowed to hunt on, and yeah, lots of muleys, but no elk, and I uh, had my first ever, so I've always hunted, and, and this might be I don't know if this is the case for other new hunters, but I've always hunted with someone. I've always, it's whether it's been a guide or a friend or my husband. Um, and so since there was four of us, we decided, and we hadn't seen any elk, we decided on, I think it was Friday, uh, the Friday evening or Friday afternoon hunt, because we were going, of course, at you know five in the morning and then coming back midday and going back out at like 3 p.m., um, that we would each kind of split up and I'd take this you know, finger up this Canyon and, you know, someone else would kind of push this way and we'd all just see if we could nice. find any track or sign or anything. And, um, it was my first time walking up a, 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 Canyon, a Valley without my dog with a gun and by myself looking for an animal. And it was amazing. Um, you know, usually if you're, if you're out hiking by yourself, you're making a lot of noise and trying to make sure that everybody knows you're there. Um, And I, you know, that my first three steps in was bears, just bear scat everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it was exciting. And then, you know, that you're in there and you're sitting and the sun is setting and, you know, I haven't seen an animal for three days. And then suddenly every, every stone at dusk turns to a bear (laughs) and every, you know, twig turns into a wolf and every every rustle in the woods is, you know, something to come in to get me. But um, I had this really cool experience with mule deer in a meadow where I was trying to be, you know, creeping around the side of this meadow and I did the classic step on a stick and totally got made five mm. muleys looked straight at me and mm. I just stood there totally deer in headlights. Just, uh, uh, you know, just looking side to side with my eyes, but not even turning my head, just stood uh-huh. there, staring at them. Nice. And, um, the lead doe, she came out and zigzagged towards me and then, uh. You know, I kind of moved my arm because I was like, is she going to be aggressive? And um, so I kind of moved my arm and she puffed out, like like blew out her nostrils, like snorted and blew out. I could see, you know, if we were close enough. She was only maybe 50 yards and um, kind of blew snot or something out of her nose. And all of the animals jumped up and did their cool deer hop off Aww. back into the meadow. Um, I love that. It was hop. so cool. We must have done it three Honking. times before they finally. Oh, okay. That's what it's called. Yeah. Um, no.
0: I always call it pranking, cool. and I know that's not well, right. <laughs> it's
2: so it's pronghorn do something and mule deer do something, and one is called stotting and one is pronking. And now I'm second guessing myself. I'm i think th- maybe pronghorn's pronk.
0: No, I think hmm. mule deer's pronk. Okay. <laughs> but don't hold me on that.
2: Anyway, anyway. So uh, another gonna, thing I'm our listeners will tell right. us about.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it was really cool. You know, I've I've only hunted elk and pheasant. And so um, I haven't been that close to mealies, at least not without my dog or without me making a lot of noise on purpose, because I don't want to be that close right. to them. Typically, I want them to do their thing and me not to bother them. And um, yeah. yeah, three times before they finally, you know, I, then I was like, okay, I'm going to walk towards you and get past you and we're going to stop doing this. And they went up into the woods. So um, yeah. but anyway, so that was a really cool so experience cool. for me. That is yeah. really cool.
0: That's one thing I love about mule deer. They're just, they're curious first, right? Like they don't waste the energy unless they really sense a threat.
1: Um, And so they'll
0: check it out before they run.
1: Yeah. Elk are not that way. Neither are white tail. (laughs) Nope. Nope. No way. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Um, But then the next morning, um, there they were. We found them. (laughs) They were elks. Everywhere. oh you found the elk uh, we've oh good to, yeah the next day Saturday morning we we found the elk or maybe it was Saturday afternoon uh no I don't know but on Saturday we finally found them and they I don't know where they came from if they came down from up higher or came up from down lower but um right. they showed up and the ghosts that we, they are <laughs> they are so amazing um, we hunted them so aggressively I think we put on 12 to 15 miles of of creeping which is Oof. a lot that's more a lot that's intense. It's true. <laughs> yeah um, you know, trying to just creep and then stop and kneel down and kind of crawl and back up and figure out how to get through branches and, um, you know, sitting in meadows, but also, you know, we were like, we've got a day and a half, we need to hunt aggressively. There's no parking it in a meadow when you've got, you know, 30 meadows to park it in. So we did a lot of looking and, um, Sunday morning, my husband actually, um, had what he thought was a clear shot, uh, but there a twig or something must have ricocheted, and um, I, I, he he thinks it probably maybe ricocheted to a, a leg or something. But we did find a little bit of blood, and we spent the whole <laughs> the rest of the morning about six hours tracking her, and it was just the tiniest spot of of blood every maybe hundred feet, and it was a little bit of snow. So you'd kind of follow it through the snow and then you'd lose it and we'd split up, you know, he and I would split up and one of us would find it. um, You know, and then it would go, you you know, we'd find it again. And, and we got along the fence line and we thought, Oh no, she jumped the fence, um, which was the edge of the property. But I took, we went back and forth, back and forth for probably half an hour. And then I said, you know, I'm just going to take a 90 degree. I bet she didn't, but I'm going to take a 90 degree back into the woods. And I started going into the woods, maybe 50 feet. And she was there all by herself and just jumped up before I could even, I think she saw me obviously before I yeah. saw her, cause that's what they do and jumped up and took off super fast. And I ran back out and I said, I think that's her. She was all alone. Um, and I looked over where she had been laying down, no blood, nothing. And so it was really cool. We then figured out which tracks were hers, like, you know, the freshest and how big they were and like how much of an imprint they were leaving in the mud. And we attempted to follow her specific tracks out of all the other tracks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, wow. we ended up, it was amazing. We ended up after a couple hours being able to find blood spots and followed her all the way. She re- reconnected with the herd. And then when we got, we got up to where she had reconnected with the herd, of course, we jumped the entire herd. Cause we didn't, we didn't know cause we were in the woods yeah. um, and the entire herd moved, but then we knew where the herd was. So um we went back, and then that's how we finally were able to harvest. We, we came back out to where we knew the herd was, you know, within this one kind of triangle area. And so we called our other two, you know, got, got the four of us all back together and, and went down the road, and um, uh, one guy was able to harvest. Um, unfortunately, you know, we, we hunted then, continued to hunt hard for another two hours, and none of, you know the, th- the other three of us, we were not able to find another elk. But at least we got one. Um, so we didn't completely get skunk. I think the hardest part for me was that we didn't find, um, the one that, that was wounded. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping because it was such a tiny bit of blood and, and it kept getting a smaller and smaller over the course of six or seven hours. And then she reconnected with the herd and she wasn't lagging behind. So
0: yeah. I'm
1: hopeful that it's something that she will heal from. So that's hard. Yeah. But, you know
0: it's 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 hard but i definitely want to voice appreciation for the effort and the skill that you guys mm-hmm. put in and demonstrated in tracking down that elk and and just making sure that you put in the solid effort and and yeah if if you caught up with the rest of the herd and she wasn't obvious in that bunch i think that might speak to the severity of the injury or the That's my hope. not severity <laughs> of the injury yeah right. it's so hard <laughs>
1: it really is you just don't know and um yeah it's just the tiniest bit of of blood but you just don't know so you just don't know yeah that's my hope but um but we did get a a really nice cow elk and and um got her home and she's in the in the garage and we were able to um actually processing her today so at least get at least starting the process today
0: uh, yeah. And it sounds like you, your group hunts with kind of the same mentality that my group usually hunts with, which is an um, animal's down and everybody benefits. Oh, yeah. From, yeah. Yeah.
1: Everybody gets a little
0: meat to take home.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it was um, my husband and one other guy that were walking down the road when the when the herd came across. And my husband said, I already took a shot this morning. You take the first shot. And if if the others hold, then I'll take a second shot. And if they run, obviously I won't. And And so... Yeah, the one guy got to shoot, and that was that. Yep. One shot. Ah. Um, yeah.
0: That's a hard few days. That's a hard, <laughs> that, That's a lot yeah. of type two fun right there, Michelle. Yeah,
1: you know, I know. Oh, a couple days were so cold. There was one morning, I think it was five, and, oh, and you're just standing. We That was a morning we decided to stand in a meadow, and you're just praying for the sun to come up, and then <gasps> the sun comes up, and you're like, it's still cold.
2: I can remember, Michelle, when you say that, this memory just popped into my mind. When I was maybe 15, I was elk hunting with my dad in Colorado, and we were overlooking a meadow. We were in a a blind of sorts. It was some down logs that we brushed in. And I can remember the sun coming up on the opposite side of the meadow, and I was so cold. I literally, well, I had fallen asleep with my rifle across my lap, and I fell asleep (laughs) like, you know, head between my knees. So when I woke up, as the sun was coming up, I couldn't feel the lower half of my body, like that's, that's how right. cold I got. And I remember watching the sun creep across the meadow, like please, Lord, get here, <laughs> just like you described. <laughs> and then, of course, when it did, yes, I was still freezing, freezing cold.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I always orb of heat on me, and it's still cold.
0: <laughs> Why? <laughs> here we and I always feel like when I go out, I like. When I go out before sunrise to sit for a hunt, I always feel like that first half hour after the sunrise is actually colder. It and is one hundred percent. It's 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 the coldest time in the morning. It's like no, the sun's up; it should be warmer, but I feel like it drops ten degrees. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, at yeah, least brutal uh, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I got I mean, yeah. Go I wore ahead. Wore my long down jacket because it was so cold. So, which is another reason why I I was sitting, because any moving was like. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yep. I know that sound. I can't move because it's loud, but I can't just sit here because I'm cold. There's no way to win.
0: (laughs) I got to tell you, I, so I, I get, I get cold, uh, you know, like really easily. And it, it ruins more hunts than I care to talk about. So I, I bought an electric vest, you know, like one of those. Oh yeah. uh, Those are great. Those are great. I love it. It saved me. Um, It it saves me all the time. But, like, if I just turn it on and that, you know, that half hour after sunrise where I'm freezing, it just gives me the courage to stay out (laughs) of Gives you the boost. I mean, it's a game changer.
1: Yeah. You know, it's got to do it. You'll well, that's an excellent segue that. into energy, because what does it take to charge that much? <laughs> that's,
0: I've totally planned that.
1: <laughs> nice work. Well done. Awesome.
0: Uh, excellent. Yeah. So tell us about your day job. <laughs>
1: um, I actually am a developer for solar, solar photovoltaic, photovoltaic projects. I can even say what I do. So I um, actually started my career in nonprofit work doing land and wildlife conservation for about 10 years. And and that's how I ended up on the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission um, was that during that the first half of my career when I was doing wildlife conservation work. I had served on a couple of committees with Colorado Parks and Wildlife and then had been asked uh, to put my name in for to become a commissioner. Um, Since that time, I made a transition, and and that transition beat was because I was doing a lot of work with land conservation and land management and estate planning, and um, energy development was becoming a big part of of large landscapes, and and so I got really involved with energy development and made the switch over to energy development. So I started working in solar, um, gosh, 2008, I think doing um, rooftop and commercial and industrial and, you know, just residential. And then I moved into doing more utility scale and I've been doing the large utility scale development work for, um, for about six years. And, and that's majority of what I do now. I also do community-based solar. Um, So I currently work for a company called Sunshare that does community solar, which is a pretty interesting concept. Um, Surprisingly, it's a lot more complex than just utility you know, so so solar energy is is pretty straightforward, right? You the the solar panels have um you know electrons that, that get moving when when the sun hits the solar panel hits the cell, and there's cells within the solar panel. And as those electrons are moving, that's how they're making electricity. Uh, you put a few of those panels on your roof. You gather the electricity made from the movement of the electrons um, from the sun hitting that panel. You pull those electrons into um into an inverter switches them from a direct current energy to an alternating current energy and it feeds back feeds the breaker in your home um <clears throat> pardon me if you have storage and batteries then it feeds those batteries first and then it goes in and, and feeds the loads in your home and um and anything left over if you know if it's sunny out and you don't have much much on you don't have you're not home or you don't have lights on or anything then it, it back feeds the meter back into the utility and you get credits kilowatt hour credits um on your build that can You know, for when it's in in winter and it's not as much sun, you can use those credits before you end up paying more for um, kilowatt, new kilowatt hours. So, you know, that's pretty, pretty straightforward. And then even utility scale is pretty straightforward. It's just, um, you know, now instead of putting solar on that directly feeds your house or your business um, or your building, it's putting a a power plant in the middle of, um, in in a field or, you know, an area that's appropriate near a substation and not in a wildlife movement corridor. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. not in a wetland yeah. and not in not a, sensitive in a area. But with utility scale, you know, you're putting a, a power plant essentially in, in a field or in a, an area near a substation and not in wildlife habitat, not in sensitive habitat, and not in a movement corridor. Um, and, you know, a lot of these things are up to a thousand acres, you know, 20, 30, 40 acres up to a thousand acres in size. And in those situations, you're simply putting a bunch of solar panels in a field that make a lot of power. And feed that power into the utility as a wholesale power, um, just like a natural gas compression plant or a coal plant or a hydro plant. You make electricity and sell it to the utility. The um, Usually a transmission um, line carries that, and then the utility uses that um, that energy to meet the demands that, that you and I have um, when we charge our heated vests. To go hunting, <laughs> um, although you might be heating that, and charging that in energy um, in at a elk camp or at deer camp, and in that case, it might be getting charged from a generator. So we can talk about that too. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so that's you know pretty straightforward. But now I work in community solar, and community is interesting because it's that same concept of putting a bunch of solar, making a power plant um, in an area using maybe five, ten, fifteen, twenty acres. Or a rooftop, if we can find a big rooftop. But instead of just selling it wholesale direct to the um, utility and the utility putting it on the grid and sending it out to those of us that turn our lights on, instead, this is something where everyone can buy into this. So it's kind of like a community like garden a in the city. If yeah. yeah, like a co-op. Like if, like cool. if you don't have a uh, yard and you want to grow, have a garden, you can get a plot in like a garden in a neighborhood garden down the street um same kind of thing it's solar and so let's say you live in a condo and you know you're on the first floor and so you don't have a a roof you have a roof over your head but you don't have a roof that you can put solar panels on right right so you might buy instead of putting 10 solar panels on your roof you might buy 10 solar panels in a community solar garden um and so then you get the let's say i don't know let's say just for easy numbers um 10 panels is 10% of the, that would be a really small garden, but let's say it was 10% (laughs) of the solar garden. You would get 10% of the power that was produced each month credited to your bill. And um, that's so cool. uh,
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. It's called community solar. It's available in a lot of different states. It's a legislative, usually a regulatory created, statutorily created um, offering. And it's something where there's, um, you know, it's between, the reason it's more complex is because now you have a kind of a third party. So with utility, I'm a developer. I build a a energy power plant. I sell my energy to the utility end of story. Yep. And with rooftop, it's your homeowner that uses electricity. I sell you solar panels. You use the energy created from the solar panels. End of story. But with community, I now have a utility that I'm tying feeding the power into. And so the utility might be paying me for my power. Maybe. And or I have all of the subscribers, you know, you each have 10 panels, I have 20 panels, whatever, however many panels all the subscribers have, each of them get a bill credit, you know, they have to pay for their subscription, and then they get a bill credit um, for the number of kilowatt hours created in their those 10 panels. So it's just a lot more complex. And instead of just agreement and agreement with the utility in order for these community solar things to work, they, they have to have a, a statutory legislative component. So yeah. it's pretty interesting.
0: <laughs> so I'm curious, like, um, um, I guess one benefit that I can see, and, and and I'm not sure if it works this way because it does need to have the statutory component, but, um, like, is that, can that be seed money to build the farm? Um, no, right. Can you sell, No.
1: Okay. Well, um, so typically you don't, I mean, yes, you could pre-sell subscriptions, I guess, um, and have people pay before they're getting any bill credits. Um, yeah, I suppose that could work. But that's not how it works. I, I do the development. I, you know, okay. I, I do all the land agreements and the permitting and the siting and making sure that we're staying out of um, wetlands and we're doing it right. Um, I do all that stuff. I don't. Uh, and then I do, the, you know, the construction and construction management and operations. I don't do the sales and marketing as much, okay. um, but I should probably sit down with the marketing team and figuring oh, out I'm what our pick curious. is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, because I think that could be a really interesting way to fund the development of more uh, of, a, of a transition to solar.
1: Um, well, and essentially that is what it's doing. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it may or may not actually be a seed money for that specific garden, but by doing this smaller solar garden idea. You know, really the the whole the reason utilities are even willing to buy solar when i if i put in a big utility scale solar power plant, the utilities are willing to buy from me for two reasons. One, it's it's usually more affordable than fossil fuels. But if they have a 50 year contract with, uh, you know, a coal plant, it's pretty hard for them to we have to be cheap enough that they can buy out of their 50 if it's ever remaining in their contract whether it's 10 years or however long they have left in their contract and buy into solar um but a utility is going to buy the cheapest power they can get as long as it's um reliable power you know they're right. <clears throat> they're not going to buy power that they can just you know that's why that's why wind and solar have been a little more difficult because you do have right. to meet you know you need to make sure that you've got enough if i'm managing a utility i need to make sure i still have enough easily um it's not called on-demand, but it's, uh, oh, the word's going to come to me, (laughs) (laughs) when you can just quickly turn something on and off, you know, quickly be like, oh, um, you know, it just got really hot, everybody turned on their air conditioning, quick, I got to put more power onto the grid. Right Deployment, that was the word, deploy more power. So, um, and solar and, and wind and renewable energy are doing a lot more with storage. I don't think that there's, that hard I don't think there's any um, installations really going in probably in 2022, 23 that with that don't have a storage component. I mean, there may be. It just depends on the utility and how they're managing that power. Um, but you know, I mean, I think it, it, there will probably always be a need for um, immediate deployment for for power sources, whether it's fossil fuel or something else, a battery, you know, something like that that can you be need a generator easily. <laughs> yeah, back to the generator. Yeah, you know, easily turned on and off. Um, in case someone comes home, everyone comes home from work, it's a hot day and it wasn't sunny and it wasn't windy um, and everyone turns on air conditioning. So, you know, for those things, that's what the utilities need to plan for and, or there's an education component. So I think we need to plan for all of that, but we also need to say, Hey, everybody living in Phoenix, it was a really hot day, but it also wasn't sunny and it wasn't windy. Um, You know, if you can set your thermostat to 82 instead of 76, you know, right. that really helped kind of like California had to do when they were, you know, some... doing brownouts and blackouts, you know, people just kind yeah. of rolling, rolling through. There's a lot we can do with power management, energy efficiency. Um, there's a lot of things you can do now with smart homes and smart meters inside your home to say, um, okay, I just, you know, turned on the blender. I'm going to make sure that something else isn't on when I'm, when the vacuum cleaner's on, or, you know, just making sure you're balancing your, your draw on the system. Mm-hmm. Um because, you know, if, if I suddenly have a big draw, that makes everything ramp up back at the plant, right. so to speak. So and um, not,
0: I mean, I know I'm not at all considering that when I use electricity. It's just like a – like
2: I don't, yeah, I don't consider
0: the draw or the source.
2: Yeah, exactly. Michelle, I'm so glad that you brought this up because I feel like nowhere in the conversation around energy and climate change do people – like everyone's like, what's the solution so that we can consume more cheaper and easier? And rarely does a point get made that you can you don't have to have everything exactly the way you want it a hundred percent of the time. I do remember so the
0: NWF Eco Schools program has this um, great curriculum that they implement with kids in schools that does a lot of energy management and um uh just energy awareness. So I have seen it there, which is really cool, but you're right, Ashley on the, like, we, it's not something we talk about regularly.
2: Well, yeah, I'm thinking back to when I was in the peace Corps in living in a village in West Africa and I had electricity, like sometimes, I don't know, maybe like three hours once every four days. And I never knew when and nobody did, like uh-huh. it wasn't just me, right? Like this is the whole country. was like this or a large part of the country and this has got me thinking like, okay, what all the flaws in their infrastructure were (laughs) to to cause, to cause the end result where I was, but, but yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I think about that sometimes and how it's okay to be a little uncomfortable sometimes, I guess.
1: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. It is. Or even just now with smart meters and smart homes, you may not even have to be a little uncomfortable. Maybe you can plan, you know, if everybody's going to Sally's soccer game, let's, Let's turn the AC, you know, to eighty-five or eighty-two, mm-hmm. you know, with an efficiency. You obviously don't want to come home and like ramp up and try to cool a hundred and twenty-degree home. <laughs> you right. Know, you right. Want to make sure you. So there's, but there's a whole lot of education there, and, um, you know, even that. What I just said, we didn't know that ten years ago. That oh, it, it's harder to ramp up and you know you yep. should keep a a low-level AC on all day rather than turning it off all day. You know, or or where is that sweet spot? um yeah. you know we didn't we didn't even think about that 10 20 years ago and now we're thinking about oh what is the sweet spot there so i think there's a lot of things we can do you're just thinking about okay i've got um this light on and this on if i want to go you know whatever backing the floors i'm going to turn this other thing off or microwave my meal i'm going to make sure i'm not drying my hair at the same time <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> i don't know but you know there's just things to think about um it, 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 on the home front and then of course you know the large users when it comes to commercial industrial um there's so much you can do there you know I mean every every little bit's like recycling you know I mean yes, every little bit counts you know every can and cardboard and whatever but on the large scale you know waste really really comes from a, a bigger source than than you and me I mean let's let's mm-hmm. do everything we can at home but then let's make sure we're also doing everything we can to tell commercial and industrial, we want them to do the right thing too. So whether that's putting your money where your mouth is or whatever that's called when you're, you know, you're buying from companies that um, only use recycled materials or, um, you know, you're going to restaurants, that only compost or just, you know, little, little things we can do now. And with this, you know, amazing computer in our hand, we can learn these quick things. And these are the kinds of things that companies are now learning. Oh, I better put this on my website so that my consumers and even Mm -hmm. business to business, you know, my, if I'm a wholesale provider, even the businesses that are buying my, my products or my services need to know this and then need to get this out to consumers. Um, and even in investing and getting our our cities and counties, you know, we're constituents, we're voters, telling them how to, saying, hey, stop, you know, we know that you manage our taxes by making sure they're invested and managed and stop stop investing in um, companies that are doing anything but the right thing for the planet.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, Yeah. So I want to go back. I think it's important anytime we talk about a transition to clean energy to emphasize that we're not talking about transitioning at the expense of the communities that rely on extraction um, for, for oil Not and gas. So I think, yeah. you know, I think I want to, I want to make sure and, and put that in early into the conversation, um, because I think it's important for people who are listening to us with an open mind is that, you know, I think when we look at the future, and we look at climate solutions, and we look at what we need to do, clean energy is in a really important part of that And it needs to be done in a way that's supportive of the communities and the people that rely on the oil and gas industry for their livelihood. So I just want to put that out there. Um, But then I want to switch lanes and take us back to um, kind of the beginning of the conversation when you were talking about what, uh, what your transition into solar looked like and what caused it. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about uh, what you noticed was happening um, in development on the land, and and what made you make the switch to solar?
1: Yeah, I think the uh, again, you're you're very good at setting up segues. What you just mentioned mm-hmm. about oil and gas, I I didn't I I think I maybe hinted at this, but I don't think I specifically said it. That renewable energy resources are great. They're another power plant. Um, we're gonna need you know batteries are another. Deployable energy source: um, oil, gas, coal, hydro. There's a lot of different energy sources. We need a portfolio of solutions. Um, I don't think that we're ever going to completely um, get rid of plastic. For example, I don't. You know, let's let's recycle. Let's use beeswax wrap instead of a plastic bag. I don't know, but let's. But I don't think we're ever going to fully get rid of plastic. We might really reduce our reliance on it and find other options, hemp or I don't know, something. But um, clearly not my industry. But same thing with oil and We can switch to electric vehicles, yes. And we can power those vehicles by putting solar panels on the roofs of facility fleet maintenance buildings and uh, plugging in our, our buses. There, there's so many things we can do. But I don't think that we need to eliminate oil and gas by any means. Um, right. I work with a—it's I mean, all energy. We need a portfolio of all of it. It's all energy. We may not need as much oil and gas that make up the full percentage of the pie, but we're always going to need some. I mean, and, and let's be honest, our reliance on energy is going up. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we're. we're I think it's. Um, it's gone up by. I had a number. Let's see. Was it seventy nine percent or something? Um, I mean, every yeah, our use of energy, our use of electricity, just keeps in increasing. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that's gonna. You know, there are things we can do to make it better, but we're going to keep in, Especially if we, you know, if we switch to electric vehicles, let's say, yeah. um, then we're going to increase our our demand on on energy. Um, we might point. decrease our demand on gasoline, but we're still going to have need for energy, electricity. And some of that electricity does come from oil and gas. So I think we're always going to need some of that. Um, We may reduce the percentage of it, but there's always going to be, you know, instead of it being 80% of the pie, it might be 20% of the pie, but that pie is getting bigger. (laughs) So it's still a lot, Uh, still till 20% of a bigger number might, you know, be the same as what it is today. So, I'm not I'm not sure what those numbers are going to look like in the future. Obviously, no one is. But I do think that it's important for what you said that oil, gas, hydro, I mean, I don't know, algae, whatever, there's going to be need for, for all of the solutions. Um, you know, we're not getting out of this with one, um, you know, with one magical solution here.
2: So there's not any unobtainium that we can find. (laughs) There's people looking for it. So,
0: you know, the asteroid with the right resources, just about, (laughs) (laughs) just about in reach.
1: Definitely going to hit any minute. Any minute now. (laughs) Yeah, it might, you know, and that'd be great too, but, um, <laughs> but everything comes, everything comes with consequence, you know, no, nothing, yeah. nothing is, everything comes with a consequence. So with that may come other things. Um, I, but yeah, thank you for, for mentioning that. Yeah. Um, So what made that switch was I was realizing that I was doing a lot of work with land conservation, land management, um, landowners being, you know, large ag producers or, or small farmers, um, you know, oil and gas really came in big time on, on how, did, how to share the land and use the land. And um, a lot of landowners, that, you know, everyone's seen this with over the course of the last 40 years with the transition to agribusiness and the loss of the kind of local farmer, local rancher. Um, their economic status has reduced and reduced and, and it's harder and harder for them to make ends meet. That's why we have so much hunting on private land now. Um, cause a lot of these ranchers, the only way they make it is the four weeks, you know, or eight weeks that we, week, right. depending on where they are, that they can lease their land for hunting or they can sell private land tags. Uh, that's what makes it for them. Otherwise they couldn't make it. They couldn't put food on our table. And, and that's really, I think important for people to understand that agriculture is, isn't, um, you know, isn't, isn't a self-sustaining business in, in every situation, um, so I think, you know, as I was doing a lot of this work with landowners and realizing that they do need a, con- you know, oil and gas gave them this kind of consistent income that it didn't matter if it was a wet season or a dry season, they could still at least rely on this, this one source. And and same thing with solar, if a landowner is leasing the land or even selling off a portion of the land, it's only a small portion. You know, if, it's a, if they've got a 20,000 acre ranch and they're going to use a thousand acres of potentially, you know, their least productive land or something like that uh, for solar, then they're getting X number of dollars an acre, whatever that may be, that's consistent year after year. Um, That really helps, you know, that really helps take the edge off from an otherwise pretty risky um, endeavor. And that's kind of, you know, how they've managed with with hunting as well, with allowing hunting and private land tags and and those kind of things. It just takes the edge off and I think, you know, helps them make ends meet. So I was noticing this a lot and working with landowners and um, you know, just had an interest in in energy and clean energy specifically, um, and so that you know, as I was doing more and more and more of this work with with land conservation, I I got interested in it and had an opportunity to make the switch and and um and jumped on that opportunity. So I think it was a it just was a natural progression. Um, it didn't feel forced. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I'm pretty happy where I'm at, and I get to be. Yeah. You know, the, the one, the, the voice as a developer that stands up there and says to a planning commission or a board of county commissions, a, an approval jurisdiction uh, that says, you know, you can tell me, no, if this is the wrong project, if you want to keep this project as open space, if you want to put, make this a trail system, if you want to, um, you know, if this should be wildlife viewing, then, then you can tell me, no, um, nice. because We're you need to do, yeah, you need to do the right thing in the right place. And I am the first one to say, look, if you can force me to put in a, um, you know, whatever it might be, like, if I have a 600-acre site and I can put in two or three wildlife movement corridors and make sure that I'm using wildlife-friendly fencing, no barbed wire on top, um, tall enough to try to deter any sort of, you know, animals crossing the fence, we do have to fence it because of National Electric Code. It is high voltage, so we do have to fence it. Small mammals can still get under and use that land we're doing a lot now with agrivoltaics to try to see if we can get um, sheep and uh, pollinator species and and do things that allow continued agriculture within that fenced area but really we want to make sure that we don't end up with um, a deer or a whitetail or an antelope antelope would go under but we want to make sure that nobody (laughs) goes over um, and gets stuck and so you know whether it's um, one way exits uh, deer, deer gates, or um, like I say, wildlife-friendly fencing, or making sure you can see through the fence when you go around a corner. Because I don't want a deer or an antelope, you know, um, completely abandoning an area because they feel that they're they're now in a cave or in a tunnel to get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Uh, so specifically, if if you've got a you know water wetland corridor or something, say on the east side of of your footprint of your project of your array, and you know that animals are going you know from the hill way up on the west down to that water area and back up each day you want to make sure that you've got some movement corridors and hey county commissioner or township planner or whoever you might be that is making a decision on my permit if I'm an energy developer and you can make me do the right thing and I can still do my project then you can make every developer do it not just energy developers but but let's make sure that we're putting um that that sort of we're taking some of the autonomy out of the developers um desire to just do to to kind of sometimes we've known um you know sometimes i think we've all seen this and whether it's the apartment building we live in or anything else you know there's a a desire to if you're a developer to cut corners and make more money and um you know solar is a tight business the margins are really tight it is not uh you know it's not a a boon but um if i can you know if, if my company can do the right thing and do the wildlife friendly fencing and and put in wildlife corridors then then so can everyone else so I really try. That's that's why I chose development and permitting um, over, you know, some other part of the business because um, it's kind of fun to be able to stand up there and say, hey, you know what, you guys can force me to do the right thing. Yeah. Well, and here I think
0: I mean, there's there's so much I appreciate about that. One, it's like you like you're standing in front of the commission and saying like, you guys are the ones with the big picture. Like I'm here with my wants and my needs and my thoughts and my ideas, but they have the big picture. Um, and, and they have not only the ability, but also like the responsibility to make sure that that picture um,
1: stays whole. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if they, you know, if it's up to them to make sure that they're meeting the needs of the constituents. And, if, and in, in more and yeah. more places, constituents and citizens really want renewable energy. They want clean power. You know, they've got yeah. enough kids with asthma or whatever it might be. I don't know. Um, but Just But it's kids. really a desire... Of, yeah period In general Full and, stop uh, no, no no adults um <laughs> no i had, i actually was born was born with asthma, but that's just because it's genetic uh, <laughs> but I think that it's it is a lot of ratepayers are demanding um this you know from their local utilities and local rural electric associations, and so um, communities and planning commissions and board of county commissioners are are needing they need to see this big picture like you say. <laughs>
0: And it's also super interesting listening to you talk because I know, um, you know, obviously I think there's, uh, um, in some communities, there's a strong understanding. And then in other communities, there's uh, a lack of understanding that, like you said, like these are still power plants. These are still taking up space on um, wildlife habitat. And there's still obstacles that wildlife need to navigate. And so I think I I'd thought through sort of some of the ramifications about what that might mean for you when you're looking at a site and determining the best place to put it. But it's also really cool to hear that when you're putting it up, you're planning it to be wildlife friendly and considering um, the best use of the space to make sure that it's as safe as it can be for wildlife who are navigating that space.
1: Yeah, and I think it, it's really, that to me, that's really important and that's what i keep expressing to jurisdictions that are approving or declining, um, you know, denying requests, permits for these things that, yeah, same thing with wind, you know, it might be great, it might, the best wind resource might be up on this really nice ridge or something, and I don't work in wind, so I don't know. But, um, but it could also be a a bird, a migratory bird path. And so in that case, you know, yeah, great concept, great idea, good wind, great idea, not the right place. Yep. Move it, you know, move it over here or move it over there. Um, and that's just that's just reality. That's just the way it's gonna go. Um, and I think it should. I think that, you know, okay, well, that wind farm might have lower production, which means their margins are not gonna be as good. And that may mean that they're gonna have to pay less for the land, which means the farm which means the farmer might not make as much as much money. Um and so there's a lot of ramifications for making that sacrifice. Um, you know, there's a lot of consequences for set for for making a sacrifice for wildlife and natural resources. And yet it's worth it. Mm -hmm. I think if everyone understands the sacrifices that are being made, then everyone can say, all right, you know, I'll, I'll take a little bit of a hit and you take a little bit of a hit and everybody takes a little bit of a hit. Um, And that's, I think that's what we need to start doing. Kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning of, "Well, if I got to set my air conditioning to 84 instead of 76, that's the hit I got to take. You know, it's uncomfortable. And but, and that's and a bummer. Yeah, and and it's an opportunity, right? It's an
0: opportunity to not make the same mistakes that we've been making. It's an opportunity to make this transition to a more diverse energy system, uh, the right way.
1: Uh, yeah, or at least the right way as we know it. The right. Yeah. Well, well said. Yes, the right <laughs> no. way. As we're right it today, right now, in this moment. Yeah. We're learning. Yeah. You know, we think we electric vehicles are going to fix everything. But well, I don't know. Maybe. No. I hope so. But, Let's yeah. try it we don't know if yeah. we don't try. We don't know if we don't try. Right. Yeah. Very. Cool. And, and, you know, that's transportation, but there's, you know, you know, with climate change, there's, there's water but, and there's, you know, food yeah. and fashion and waste and all the yeah. other stuff. All the other stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's yeah. Uh,
0: okay. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about when you are, um, when you are looking for a spot to put solar panels on, what are some types of considerations that you bring into the decision
1: as mm-hmm. it concerns wildlife? This is probably one one of the biggest questions, um, as you can imagine for a number of reasons, especially at jurisdictions when we're permitting, but also for landowners but um, and and for a lot of jurisdictions that are agriculture type communities and they're saying, wait, you're, we're losing agriculture to solar panels. Wait, we can't do this. So, you know, this, we call it, you know, citing Um, this whole idea of how do you cite a project is, is really important. And so there's kind of a, for me, there's a top five um, when I'm going to cite a project. The first is it's got to be close to the right size transmission lines um, depending on the size of the project. So it can't be out in the middle of nowhere where all you have is a couple of small distribution lines going to, you know, a farmhouse over here and maybe a shop over there, you've got to have at least three phase, which in an area where you've got a lot of oil and gas and, um, you know, a lot of irrigation farming and well heads, you've got three phase energy. Any place you have a a production well or, you know, a larger well like that, not just a household well, well, um, but for irrigation, that kind of thing, you've got a a large enough line for at least, um, you know, a community scale size solar project. But if you're doing a bigger solar project, five, 600 acres, you need to be close to a substation. You can't, you know, it's a lot harder to do just a line tap, you've got to build a whole generation line all the way back to a substation. So if you're five, 10, 15, 20 miles away from a substation, that's really expensive. You've got to pay to build the line to take the power from the solar array all the way to the substation. And you've got to make sure that that substation has the right components to, to to bring your generation into into the network. So, um, for example, if you're going into a substation that all the bus bars are full or it doesn't have enough capacity to add more generation, you might be, in order to upgrade that um, as, a, as a solar developer, for that solar project to be able to tie in and interconnect to the utility, it could be millions of dollars in upgrades that it has to pay for. And that's okay sometimes. I mean, I've done projects where, Seven ten million dollars is, is doable, but you know there's other projects where three hundred thousand dollars is you can't even afford it. So it just depends on again all of those other things like how much are we paying for the land, um, you know what kind of other constraints have we had. So you know close enough to a substation or um, sufficient size power line that's really important, and a substation that can handle the, inco- the new incoming generation um, that you that you're proposing to to bring in. So that's the biggest one. Um, the second has got to be, um, I think, topography. At least for solar, and probably for wind. Wind, you've got to, I think, you know, site it for the wind resource. It has to be a certain amount of, you know, consistent wind and, and that kind of thing. But for solar, we need topography. We need it to be relatively flat. Uh, it's just, you know, you've got, you, everyone's seen the large fields of, of solar panels and, uh, you know, going up and down over over hills. Um, Or anywhere where there's trees, you know, you do have to clear the trees because trees will shade the solar panels. And if you shade the solar panels, um, you you have a significant drop in production. And again, you know, the less power you produce, the less money you make. And if you're paying for things like substation upgrades and um, lease costs and permitting costs and construction costs, you really can't afford a loss in production. So proximity to a substation um, or, or sufficient power line, topography, um, very important. Um, and then a, a lot of it for us is um, land type, so land type land use. So if, if you're near a, a town or a suburb or a city and you've got a lot, you know, the planned unit, um, planned use development and, um, you know, it's gonna be a commercial area or a retail area or a residential area, probably not the best place for a 600 acre solar farm. <laughs> Maybe, you know, maybe a two or three acre distributed solar community garden, that might make sense near homes if there's a, a, some unusable land for whatever reason. Um, maybe it was a, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's not, there's no homes on it, maybe it makes sense to put solar on it. But um, for the most part, if you're doing large scale solar, you, you want to be outside of the city, it's not just for land costs, but also because, you know, most people don't want to live next to a large solar array. Um, I tend to disagree, <laughs> but that's because I've spent a lot of time near large solar arrays. And they're the best neighbor you can ever have.
0: Um, they're quiet. They don't throw big They make,
1: yeah, they make no noise. They make no um, light. There's no lights. There's no cars coming and going when mom and dad are out of town and the teenage kid is throwing a party. There's no um, harvest time. There's no dust. There's no, there's nothing. Um, mm-hmm. And animals still move in the in the setback areas, um, you know, around the fences, and and it's really cool to know that like that thing's sitting out there, making no noise, no light, and adding power to the grid. Yeah. I I think being next to it, I I would happily um buy, you know live next to a solar. Unfortunately, I tend to want to live in the mountains where I can ski and mountain bike. So um, too much shade Not a there. whole lot of solar. <laughs> they <laughs> don't know, call them do shadow panels. <laughs> yeah, I got you. I see what you did there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was brilliant. But, yeah. But I mean we do there are some places certainly in the mountains. We've got a couple of rays in Breckenridge and and places in the mountains and um and that's fine but they're not, you know, they're not large. So certainly land use um you know productivity making sure like you say they're not shadow panels and um you know and then a big one was citing as um as agriculture. So If you're in an area that um, is highly productive farmland, NRCS, prime farmland, that's a tough one to to pull that out of prime farmland and put it into solar. And that's where two things, we've been working on agrivoltaics, so ways we can continue to farm underneath the solar panels or around the solar panels um, or graze or whatever it may be. And there's a lot of great stuff happening there. Um, And or looking at ways that, hey, if this farmer has X number of acres in production, and this farmland, while it's still prime farmland, this area is maybe the least productive of, of that farmer's land for whatever reason, um, and it's only 1% of all the ag land in the county, or less than 1%, um, you know, some kind of thing like that, then then I think you can usually get around that concern around loss of ag land. And to be honest, I've done a lot of research with the Colorado Department of Agriculture um, and a few others. To say, okay, if we took all the substations and we put as much solar power as we could in the ground around these substations, you would still, at least in eastern Colorado, um, you would only you would use less than one percent of the ag land that's that's currently registered as productive ag with Department of Agriculture.
2: Yeah, I think that's so similar. T-
1: not as bad as people think. It's <laughs> you, just simply the substations and the lines just simply can't take on it. Just there's a capacity thing. It's like a hose and water. You just, you can't cover the ground in solar. Um, the hoses, the lines that carry the power are not big enough for that. And the demand isn't there.
2: Makes sense. Yeah. I mean,
1: that's just a lot of power. You can, you can cover 80% of your power needs with less than 1% of the, of the ag land. So um, it's just hard to convince people of that without, you know, until they see it, it's hard for them to believe it.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. That's that brings a lot of perspective. I think.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Ashley, were you going to say something?
2: Yeah, just the the whole idea of um, converting, kind of, I would I wouldn't say marginal farmland, but sub subprime, (laughs) maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. Just like on the on the margins of fields, and you know, like today we have the technology with um, you know, drones and LIDAR and GPS to be able to pinpoint within a field. Like you were saying, Michelle, what, what is maybe not producing quite as much as 10 yards to the West. Um, and there's a similar farm bill program. I think it's called CREP maybe. Um, the name is escaping me right now, but basically they pay farmers to plant things for wildlife there whether it be for pollinators or Mm -hmm. um, other plant species that aren't going to be harvested with the rest of the agricultural commodity. Um, And this just reminded me of that, of kind of becoming super efficient and using, using the margins for something more useful than just another row of corn or what have you. And the farmers know,
1: I mean, the land. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. They're aware.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And it can be advantageous for them because they can make, more money, more money, you know, doing t- by changing the use than keeping it status quo. Mm-hmm.
1: I think the hardest part is, you know, everyone thinks, oh, we'll just cover the land and solar and, and, and that's going to be that. Like, there's so much around jurisdictions and, you know, a lot of counties and communities don't want um, a whole lot of solar in a lot of places or there might be a neighbor or a group of neighbors that don't want solar in their backyard and they can, they can kill a permitting process. Um, there's just so many pieces that it's hard for landowners because they might sign up for a lease and they think, Oh, I'm going to get X number of dollars an acre. And it's going to be great. Well, it takes, I mean, this project, I have just started construction in September. I signed up leases in 2016. It's taken me five years of full-time Oof. work to try to get this thing going. And, and it's, it's hard to explain that to landowners sometimes that, um, you know, stick with me. <laughs> We're gonna yeah. get, And we, and, and we might not too. I mean, of, of that project that I started signing in 2016, I also signed up between 2016 and 2018, you know, 10 or 20 other projects that didn't, that didn't make it. Right. So that's another thing to consider. There's a lot of reasons a project doesn't make it, whether it's through permitting or, you know, you find out it is significant wildlife habitat or threatened or endangered species, or um, the, the upgrades at the substation are just gonna be too much and it kills the project, or there's, there's so many reasons why a project doesn't get built. Um, I think that's the other thing is people think like, oh, all these farmers have their land under lease to build solar. Unfortunately, maybe 30% of all of those leases that are currently sitting there as um, kind of in their due diligence option periods of, well, let's do our due diligence and see if we can actually build this thing. I think only maybe, you know, 30% of them are going to go through because there's so many um, different ways a project can can find its way um, to, to the graveyard.
0: <laughs> so interesting. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: I think like given that like if you had a magic wand <laughs> mm-hmm. and you could change one thing about the process that you engage in, like what would be the what would be the first thing that you would do?
1: I would want every utility and transmission and regional power authority network out there to just tell the developers, I want this much power, this much storage in this location. And then we can work with the landowner and we can put it all together. Um, In a dream world, that's what would happen. Of course, there's a lot of reasons why that can't happen. There's, um, you know, Federal Energy Commission and and secrets. And of course, we can't put that public, um, you know, our our network and our transmission network. We can't make that completely open to the public information. And um, as soon as landowners, you know, as soon as people know that, okay, this is where we're going to start building all this um, solar energy resource, you're going to have developers go buy this land at Um, Mm -hmm. pennies on the dollar and turn around and try to sell it to solar developers at top price and then no one's ever you know the developer the landowners are trying to make too much money and so then the projects can't go forward and you know there's just a hundred reasons why that can't happen but in a dream world with a magic wand yes I would okay (laughs) that's what I would that's what I would do I would say I would because right now it's so much speculation you know you go out and get 30 leases to build five projects because you just don't know where it's going to work, where the utility is going to be able to take on the power, where it's going to get permitted. You don't know. So you have to, you have to use the the shotgun approach and you have wow. to tie up all of this land for five years so that, you know, if you tie up 30 pieces of land, maybe five of them get built. And that's really hard because those other yeah. 25 parcels of land could be doing you know, looking at something else and they can still farm right. while they're, you know, under option. It's not like it has to sit there and be vacant, but still that is a it's a lot of, yeah. it's a lot yeah. of wasted money. It's a lot of wasted money on that land. Oof.
0: And um, it's asking a lot for these landowners, right. Who've made a decision to that, that they're hoping will increase their or better their financial situation. It's a lot to ask them to, to wait, to hang out for six years.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of wasted money if I'm you know out of those 30 leases I'm putting the same amount of money and time into doing due diligence on all of them I'm doing interconnection yeah. studies and environmental studies and soil studies and permitting processes and spending tens of thousands of dollars hundreds of thousands in some cases um and only five maybe five of them will get built
0: wow
1: so that's my magic wand if I if I had it okay. so that um so that developers could just build everything they touch yeah. Um, and then we wouldn't have to try to overbuild to cover um, all the reasons there. why they fail.
0: Right. Right. Gosh. Yeah.
1: But that's why you take a shot to, shotgun to go bird hunting.
0: That's, <laughs> <what happens. laughs> that's a good point. And sometimes you get two with one shot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. I have never done that. Or so yeah. I it hasn't happened to me yet, <laughs> no, but I hear. No.
0: i hear It's a thing. <laughs> Um. So, kind of along those lines, are there some policies or projects that are currently in the works for increasing clean energy that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, especially in Colorado because it is such a progressive legislature right now. There's a lot around clean energy policies. Um, there's, you know, throughout the nation, there's a lot going on um, that's that, that's paving the way for for better clean energy, better pathway for um, you know, for us to be able to install solar power maybe half the time instead of five years maybe two or three years um but i you know I, I don't think there's any specific piece of policy that i'm aware of right now but i would love to look into that and get back to you and see if you can cool. plug it in a future <laughs> yeah podcast yeah, definitely. there is a sort of really great piece of policy out there um i'm trying to think well, of, a, of a couple right now but i haven't been um yeah, yeah. I need to get back. Well, to I know
0: that. <laughs> two, that's great, and definitely keep me posted. Um, we would love to hear back from you. I know that two that that we're working on right now are not ex- specifically or exclusively focused on clean energy, but the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was signed into law in mid-November has oh, yeah. a lot of funding for yeah. um, for a whole boatload of climate solution initiatives. But then there's also the Build Back Better Bill. Tongue tied. Build Back Better Act um Mm -hmm. which as of our conversation today which who knows how things change in dc where it will stand when this podcast actually airs but as of today it's set to move to the house floor for a vote any day now um and i found this super cool list um put out by the the sierra club that that uh, see, so specific to clean electricity, they had some really, really specific highlights. And I think with anything as big as the infrastructure bill or the Build Back Better Act, like these are addressing a lot of issues across the country. And so it can be tricky for the non super wonky people to pick out the details. So I found this list super helpful, but it talks about. Um, specifically for clean electricity, more than double the speed of wind and solar power expansion, bringing renewable energy to millions of additional homes each year is one of the benefits including in, included in the Build Back Better Act. Uh, they mm-hmm. will It will make it $7,000 cheaper on average to install solar panels on your rooftop. It will boost access to renewable energy in low-income and indigenous communities by covering 40 to 50% of the cost of solar and wind projects. Um, It offers churches, hospitals, schools, local governments, and other nonprofits the opportunity to install wind and solar power for 30% less than the normal cost. Um, And that's just a few of the highlights that I pulled specific to our conversation today. But I thought that was a really helpful list.
1: That's great. Where is that?
0: Sierra Club? Um, Um, Yeah, so that's Sierra Club. We'll we'll link to it in our show notes, but the title is um, Real World Benefits of the Build Back Better Acts, Historic Climate Oh God! I'm. Gonna... Uh, you're doing great.
1: Getting to me. Uh, hey, Google. World... Google finished it. I typed it in, and Google finished it out for I me. Mean, Real-world benefits of the build back better. That is it. Oh, see, you said it sales better. Sales by the seashore. That's what it really is. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, and I. You're right. I have from a federal policy level. I'm sorry, I was thinking Colorado level, but yes, from a federal policy level, I've heard a lot about the infrastructure bill having um, some great. Uh, things in there for renewable energy. Um, it, yeah, I think there's, a, there's so many things that can be done with regard to brownfield development. And um, like I said, agrivoltaics. What's, what's and, brownfield development? Uh, well, you know, a lot of times, if we can find if we can identify areas like, like landfills, or um, mm. uh, what's it called? EP, EPA sites, not necessarily super fun sites, but sites that that would otherwise you certainly couldn't build a a school or you know a housing right. development on them um could be used for solar you know solar doesn't care if it's next to oil and gas that's fine yeah. and and in colorado so many there's so many new setbacks for oil and gas that you can't be near a house or a building but you can be near solar panels that's fine mm-hmm. um they don't care <laughs> and and i think that there's there's a lot of great opportunities with brownfields and with agrivoltaics the issue there is it's more expensive um you know to build on a landfill of course you can't you you have to use poured and paste but poured in place ballast, concrete ballast. You can't um, drive uh, piles, you know, that hold the racking into mm-hmm. through the cap of a landfill. Uh, mm-hmm. So that adds cost. And then it has to be a fixed tilt, which reduces the production compared to a single axis tracker that requires you to, you know. So there's just a lot of little things that, like, yes, we want to build on brownfield, but there's some more things we have to do. Maybe we have to do remediation. Um, so there's policies and, and legislation moving around that, that help with reduce costs or, um, you know, pave the path for permitting. Um, so you don't have to spend as much money on permitting. Or you know, there's just a lot of things that are moving moving forward um, from a collaborative perspective that that would allow more streamlined solar development. Yeah.
0: Very cool. We are going to take a quick break to hear from some of our favorite partners. We will be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors
2: podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries,
0: and decision-makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. South Dakota is expanding pheasant hunting's horizons and giving sportswomen a greater voice in the field. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you harvest. Hunting is our shared legacy. Everyone is welcome to enjoy it. Go to huntthegreatestsd.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's huntthegreatestsd.com. South Dakota, sportswomen welcome. Okay, welcome back. Um, Ashley, do you have
2: any burning questions? No, I mean, this... This has been incredibly enlightening for me. I think one of the things that I found that I've just found super fascinating through this conversation is what you were saying, Michelle, about um, the solar, like that you don't know what the infrastructure out there is. That never occurred to me and how just with all the best intentions and the resources and the people on the other side wanting to do this, it's still kind of the process is stymied by that. So that that was very interesting. That was new knowledge for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of work being done to try to give us the information we need. The utilities are try to, trying to say, okay, well, let's look at each substation and let's see how much capacity it has. And, you know, okay, well, if you add 10 megawatts, it's going to be $700,000 of upgrades. But if you want to add 100 megawatts, it's $10 million. And it, you just, there's so many scenarios and there's so many substations and there's so many options. And maybe there's the substation, but... And it would be great to bring in new power, but it's housing all around it. There's no land. The closest land is seven miles away, and we can't get easements to build a generation connection back to the substation. There's, just, there's so many scenarios to run at each location and so many locations. Um, I think there, you know, there's a lot of utilities that want to help give this information and, and they want to know too. I mean, they're managing their network. They want to know where do we need more generation? Where do we, you know, so they want to work on this too, um, but it's just iterative and so many different scenarios. And then there's a lot of other pieces that, um, that play into it. It's not just, okay, this is an area we can take on generation. Um, it's like, well, that's great. But, um, you know, it's prime farmland or the landowners are all around here, don't, don't, don't want to lease for solar or um you know there's a myriad of other other things going on so um i think that is the hardest part you know it's a it's a big shot in the dark you know when you go it's like a scratch off not scratch off a when you pick the numbers at the lottery you know we we do the best diligence we (laughs) can and and you know you, you you get enough sites out there and you you become a really good developer and you diligence them and you pick the absolute best sites and then um you hope that the interconnection studies um come back favorably but, yeah, I wish there was a way to make that um, more efficient, and I think it would save the utility money because they wouldn't have to spend so much time studying everything. It would save time. Um, it would it would really re- alleviate a lot of heartache <laughs> for, for everyone involved, really, other than those speculator developers who, who might <laughs> want to go out and get land and then sell it for as much as they possibly could, which well, would never work because you can't build solar on really expensive land because solar doesn't the have return the there. Yeah, yeah the return, there you go. Yep. So, so
0: interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I would love to hear your thoughts, Michelle, because I think um, you know when we look at it from an Artemis perspective about why it, we're engaging in climate solutions and why it's important. It always goes back to um, habitat quality and and wildlife um, and and trying to work towards solutions that can keep our systems, the life sustaining systems that they are. And so I think if we're talking about I would love to just end on a note, um, given that this conversation has brought to light a lot of the complicating factors about transitioning to solar, um, can you speak a little bit as to why this is a necessary part of climate solutions and why we need to continue to make this transition to clean energy um, in, in in and face these complications head on with the diligence that they deserve? Can you talk
1: to that a little bit? Yeah, I think we've we've talked about it throughout the throughout the whole conversation. It's you know climate change is having a, a major impact, as we know, on not just our wildlife habitat, but but yeah, our nature. Um, and yeah, some you know some of it is is going to be natural. You have you have drier years, you have hotter years, you have cooler years, you have all of those things. But when you have the the swings um, and the annual, monthly, even weekly swings that that we're having. Um, the wildlife just haven't evolved to keep up with it yet and neither have we and it forces us to use more air conditioning or more heating Um, uh, it forces us to use more water or less water and there's so many um, quick ways and long-term ways that we can address uh, to make our lives a little more comfortable and to be able to make the the lives of our of the wildlife and the resources and the nature we love more comfortable too Um, you know there's I think there's like top six Uh, climate change, areas of of climate change that that are the biggest impacts. And it's energy, transportation, water, food, waste, and fashion. Um, You know, just the textiles and stuff. And Anyone who knows me knows that I should not be talking about fashion. So we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) Same here. (laughs) We just know I wear a really loud, long-down jacket when it's cold and I'm trying to be quiet. (laughs) Bad fashion choice. Bad. (laughs) <laughs> um, but but I I do believe that um, we can make some pretty cool changes in energy. Like I said, there are ways that we we're already making the energy the the trans the the transition to renewable energy is already happening. We can make it faster in a lot of ways, like the Build Back Better um, Infrastructure um, build. There's a lot of local things we can do. They're, the utilities are trying to work with the developers in a lot of cases, not in all cases, but I would encourage more and more utilities to do that. I would encourage ratepayers to ask their utilities to do that. Um, most utilities are not going to do the hard work on their own unless, they're, unless their constituents, their ratepayers, the people that that pay the bills, say, hey, look, I want this. And what the, what you need to be asking for is... I want more of more of the power that comes that feeds my my light bulbs and my heating and my cooling to come from renewable energy resources. And that that requires the utilities to do the work and find the best solution. whether again, whether it's solar and storage and wind and hydro and anything else, um, you know that that's up to the utilities to then do that research. but we can do this. We can make this transition faster. Again, like you said, it's not a matter of driving people in fossil fuels out of business. I don't think we're ever going to completely get away from fossil fuels. We're always going to need that that quickly deployable resource. So, um, but if we want to have the ability to to live a little more comfortably, to be a little more resilient, to be able to respond to these swings, these swift swift changes um, that are happening in our climate and in our weather. And if we want to be able to, um, you know, make make some of these changes, I think that, that now's the time and, and we can certainly do it, you know, together. Mm-hmm.
2: That's
0: so interesting. Thank you. Is there is there anything else you want to be sure to mention that we haven't covered yet?
1: Um, I don't. I mean, you know, we can go back to talking about the outcome because that's pretty fun (laughs) talking about, you know, what type of warm pants you wear that are that are less loud. (laughs) I I did learn that um, my boots are very loud, but sneakers, my like tennis shoes. If I wear tennis shoes with heated socks, I can be a lot more quiet. I never thought about why they're called sneakers. (laughs) That's awesome. Mm. Have no idea. Totally sneaky. Uh, I love Am I the, the last one the to unla- Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to mention it when you were talking about the heated vest, but um, you yeah, know, the heated socks are, are really key. Cold feet. Yeah. Nobody likes it.
0: Nobody likes it. And my feet govern the temperature of my entire body. If my yep. feet are cold, oh. I'm
1: cold. If my feet are hot, I'm hot. It's a whole thing. <laughs> I bought these. I bought these last year. Actually, I bought my husband a pair, and he bought me a pair, and um, they're Bluetooth. And you, you charge them, they're these little tiny battery packs you put on the top of the sock, you, you button them in, and you, you can recharge them, and you control them from your phone. So that morning, it was five degrees, and I had my phone <laughs> out, I cranked them up to nine, which then, of course, oh the battery was dead in 45 minutes. Right. But still, I was like, I should have hot feet. My feet aren't sweating. They're still cold. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, know. It's cold. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's so fun. Like, somebody could really mess with you though, like
1: <laughs> yeah. your... right.
0: you'd be like, Oh, why are my feet so hot? <laughs> oh,
1: incredibly pretty... uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> the the <laughs> yeah. Bluetooth but, world um, of pranks.
1: But we do have solar panels on the trailer that we, we use for hunt camp. And um, you know, as long as as long as you get some sun during the day, you can charge a pair of socks and your, your phone.
2: So it <laughs> would be so much nicer than running a gas generator, like, mm-hmm. like the best, most quiet, most efficient gas generator at camp. I don't, I don't want it's it. Still there. so
1: loud. Yeah. It's so loud. Well, and even so, you know, I mean, you're getting up at 5am at and whatever, like there's times when you have to run the, it. There's just times when you have to run the generator. It's I and mean, we had two days where it was snowy and cloudy. Of course, that's not when the elk came down with the night, they came down when the snow was there. Um, they, but you know, we did have to to turn on the generator for a couple hours to fill the batteries. So, but you try to do it in the middle of the day when um, hopefully it's not disturbing the animals and do the best you can.
2: There you go. <laughs> uh,
0: so our closing question. Uh, is one that Ashley asked our guest in the last podcast and I loved it so much. I decided it should be the closing question that we ask all of our guests and oh uh, climate series. So thank you for that, Ashley. Um, but the question is as someone who works in this every day and faces the effects of climate change head on, what gives you hope?
1: Man, you know, people, <laughs> people, we, we love our nature. We love it. We love our nature so much. And, um, we love being out in it and, and it, it gives us sanity. It gives us clarity. It gives us connection. It gives us, uh, you know, perspective. Um, and as we see that nature hurting, we want to do something about it. We want to, we want to fix it. Just like, you know, you, your, your kid or your dog or someone is is hurting or has a cold or is uncomfortable. You want to fix it. I mean, you want to fix it right away. And I think, I think that's, what's cool is we're finally at a place in this whole, climate change or sustainability or what's right for the planet or whatever you want to call it. We're kind of, we're finally at this place now. And, and I've been working in, you know, some level of environmental stuff my whole career. Um, but we are at a place now where there's some really quick, cool solutions. You can go out and buy into a solar garden, depending on what state you live in and what utility you're in. But if you can't put solar panels on your home, you know, it is expensive. You can go out and buy in a solar garden and you have immediately, immediate bill savings. You can, Um, You know, you can quickly think about um, heating and electricity and AC um, and and like we talked about at the beginning, how you can manage those things. Um, You can quickly think about how do I communicate with the board of directors from my rural electric cooperative and tell them I want to see um, more renewable energy. Um, You know, I don't want to totally give up on oil and gas. I need that, too, just like I needed the generator when it was snowy and and cloudy out at Elk Camp. Uh, You know, I had to have gas for that. That's not something I'm going to get rid of. Um, but these are things I can do quickly. I can ask my, um, uh, you know, if I go Christmas shopping, I can I can buy gifts that are, you know, made in made in the USA and that are not shipped and transported because transport and shipping and water are really contributing to climate change. So so people and our ability, we we're the ones that that guide this whole thing. Whether it's through how we consume, where we spend our money, how we vote, who we talk to, our individual decisions we can each make some kind of little or big impact and we can do it now. And just like if, you know, my kid has a cold, and take him to the, take him to the doctor, um, you know, that, that kind of thing. You can, you can quickly make some fixes. Um, I think it's the first time in a long time, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for 10, 20 years. I'm not going to give it away, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it, um, there's not always been that easy call to action. And these aren't even call to actions. These are, these are quick things you can do. Right now at home, more than just recycling, you know, more than just some of the basics that we've been doing a long time. Um, You can do a lot more now.
0: That's a really good point. I mean, I think think you're absolutely right. When we love our nature and we love the places that mean the most to us and when we see that place specifically, right? Like it's so much of climate change um, leading up to kind of the last five years, so much of it was... Um, theoretical uh, to a certain extent right we had to imagine the future in which it impacted us but now that future is here and we're seeing the impacts on the places that we love so directly and so I think you're right people are really stepping up and in engaging to protect the places that we love and yeah and and, and there are a lot of ways that we can do that
1: yep it's pretty pretty easy like you said you're going to some stuff on um, that website that you found, but there's, you know, you can just quickly on your phone, Google, um, you know, how how do I make an impact in climate change? Or you can go to the United Nations and talk about how each one of us can make a quick, make a difference, you know, today. Um, And there's big stuff too, but.
0: And there's big stuff too. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you can call your representative, whether they're Republican or Democrat, because they all need to be encouraged to support the Build Back Better Act, but call them and say, this is important. Um, yeah, please vote for it.
1: Yeah, and no, then this is not—I mean, I know that some people think this is a political thing, but I just really, it, I really don't you know, think
0: it is. <laughs> it, it isn't. It, it it transcends politics, and and I think the language around it has been highly politicized. But you know, it, it, what we're encouraging hunters and anglers to do is to kind of step out of that politicized that politicizing conversation and look at your seasons, look at what's happening to your hunting seasons Mm -hmm. and your fishing seasons, Mm -hmm. and look at what's happening to the migration patterns of the animals that you pursue. And, and, you know, like get rid of the hot button words, get rid of the polarizing um, language around this issue and look at what's actually happening.
1: We all want the same things. We We all all want want healthy wildlife populations. Yep. I mean, and, yep. you know, clean air and clean water and schools for kids, and, you know, we all want, but generally speaking, you know, we all want the same things. And in this case, it's wildlife habitat, healthy, healthy nature. Yep. And mm-hmm. for that to happen, we're going to have to start making some changes and we can. That's yep. cool. We can. And
0: those, yeah, we can. And, and those changes, some of them um, are easy and some of them are complex and, uh, but they're all possible.
1: Yeah, and the whole globe has to make changes too. But if you know, you start at home, and then you, who knows, you're on a hunting trip, and someone from some other country is is out hunting too, and you interact with them, and you say, this is what I've done," and they say, "Oh, you know," so it's it is global. But you, you know,
0: think globally, act locally. It's mm-hmm. it's, <laughs> it's yeah. you know, it's, it stretches quickly. It stretches
2: quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. The shirt or the concept? (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) depends on how much you eat for Thanksgiving,
2: (laughs) (laughs) or how old the shirt is. (laughs)
0: That's awesome, Michelle. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful to talk with you again.
1: Thank you. It's been my honor, a pleasure, and grateful that you asked me to come back on. It's great. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Watch out. We may make it an annual tradition. (laughs) Hey,
0: I like it. I'll take it. Okay. Excellent. Uh, Before we head out, I want to encourage all of our listeners to be sure to head over to the Artemis website and check out the Hunters and Anglers Guide to Climate Change, which was recently published by the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors. This guide takes a look at ecosystems across the country, paints a picture of how these landscapes matter to hunters and anglers, and then talks about how climate change is impacting them and solutions that we can all engage in that will have uh, an impact on our future. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Another reminder, if this podcast has meant something to you, please consider leaving us a review or forwarding it to a friend. Those things really matter in helping us build our community and keeping the show on the air. Thanks for joining us this week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside.
2: Before we go, I wanna encourage our listeners uh, to check out
0: the Hunters and Anglers Guide to Climate Change, which was recently published <laughs> <laughs> published. It was published. <laughs> it was published like, recently published. <clears throat> uh, b-